Hello fellow travelers and welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. What you heard was a little bit from the song Quicksand by the band Joint Pop, a band from Trinidad and Tobago, and as such today we'll be anchoring in the Caribbean to Dr. Keston Perry, lecturer and political economist at the University of Western England in Bristol. Dr. Perry, how are you doing? I am doing fine, thanks. Um, yeah, in these very strange times we're in. Yeah, speaking of strange times, um, we hope you're you're doing fine in this uh, this COVID period. Whereabout are you in in the world right now? Oh, I'm actually I'm based in London. So mm-hmm. yeah, I live in London. I work for the University of the West of England, yeah. which is in Bristol, um, where I mean. Literally, at the moment, they've just toppled the statue of um, a former slave trader. So these are very, very interesting times um, that, you know, we can talk a bit about. Yeah, we hope you haven't been too affected, at least by by COVID. Um, You're originally from Trinidad and Tobago, is that right? Yes. So I am originally from Trinidad and Tobago. I am a Caribbeanist Mm -hmm. and a West Indian. So... Yeah, so I mean, many of the the ideas um, that I share and express comes from my experience of being mm. um, both from the, the Caribbean region and understanding the world and the global political economy from that perspective and understanding how external mm-hmm. ideas and uh, positions, policies, institutions affect island states and affect uh, marginalized countries in in, in the global uh, economy, to put it that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, just to go over your your history um, a little bit, you had your bachelor's in international relations, right, in University of West Indies and a master uh, at Newcastle? Yes. So my my bachelor's uh, actually, it's in communications and international relations. I did I did also a minor in French. Uh, oh, nice. I cool. yeah, I then studied at the Newcastle University. Uh, mm-hmm. I did a management slash business course was in innovation management. Um, following that, I studied uh, my PhD at SOAS, the mm-hmm. uh, School of Oriental and African Studies. Right. In at the University of London, and yeah, here I am now. <laughs> that was in in development studies, and I guess after that, it seems like you you really went to sort of uh, international organizations like the UN a lot of it, um, and did some consultant work and, and government work. Yeah, uh, so at at some point, I think that was back in 2012, I worked for the Trinidad and Tobago government. Uh, at the Ministry of Planning and Economy. And I also uh, had done some consulting work prior to that with the United Nations Development Program, uh, the United Nations Population Fund, uh, UNAIDS. Yeah, so there are a few mm-hmm. of them. Uh, and, and I think after my um, master's, I did a bit of, you know, I dabbled my hand in, before I became a critical scholar, I think, (laughs) (laughs) in trying to do um, enterprise development work. And also, I I have also been involved in 
the United Nations Development Program, Latin American and, and Caribbean regions, mm -hmm. 2016 Human Development Report, uh, which I was an external advisor for them. Um, and after my PhD, I was also um, a postdoctoral scholar at the Tufts University in Boston in the United States. Nice. So a lot of traveling around as well. It must have been great. Yeah. Um, yes, it, 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 to some degree, it, it is very interesting, but also very, um, you want to be, at some point, want to be one place unsettled. So, yeah. <laughs> do, you feel, do you feel that um, there was any particular point in your, um, your life or your academic career where you, where you kind of uh, developed the research interests you have right now? You know, was it kind of at an early age or was it sort of during your experiences at university or in, you know, in, in work with government and, and international institutions? Or do you think that's just more of a gradual thing? Yeah, it is. It is definitely gradual. So my, I mean, my perspectives and, and research interests evolve um, over time, definitely based mm. on all, uh, I guess, cumulatively based on all these experiences. Um, it also, uh, my research interests, at least on climate change and climate justice, um, has come about based on my experience traveling in Haiti and living in Haiti for, for a bit mm -hmm. um, back in 2018, just before or during there was, you know, there was a political and social crisis there um, in 2018, which is still ongoing um, mm -hmm. to some degree. Uh, so I think my views on climate justice, climate reparations, and um, policy aspects of those, um, those those particular solutions evolved from that experience in Haiti and has evolved over, over the last few years, seeing the huge amount of devastation happening mm -hmm. uh, as a result of cyclones, tropical storms, uh, hurricanes and so on in the Caribbean region, um, the Bahamas in 2019 um, was majorly devastated as a result of Hurricane Dorian we've seen in other parts of the world, in, in Mozambique, um, Hurricane Kenneth, Cyclone Kenneth and, and Idai um, also, also had a major effect on that country. So it is observing what's going on in the global, global sphere and, and seeing um, how developing countries and, and marginalized countries in particular have been uh disproportionately affected as a result of, of climate change and and this is definitely where um that has shaped my interests and, and and views on this yeah yeah personally i i um i always kind of go back to this as because i've realized it's become one of the turning points in my own interests when i i went to the cook islands um nearby new zealand and and talked to some of the people there and realized through their kind of storytelling and stuff that um, they had lost, I don't know how many meters of beach um, since they were children um, because of the rising seas. And that uh, one person that told me that the island that they'd grown up on was now basically uninhabitable because the, the seawater had come in so far that the, the land was salinized. And so you couldn't grow anything on it anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, I think yeah, when you 
when I think seeing and experiencing the impacts of of the of that climate change in those developing countries is a is a pretty powerful way to to get to become interested. Really, um, I guess it's the whole idea that you don't really understand something until you've lived it, sort of thing. Yeah, uh, and and I think because I think because I've lived both in in places like the United States and the UK, and um, in more developing countries, you see you you know less developed countries rather you see the very very different um effects uh on of 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 rising sea levels of of droughts of hurricanes and so on whereas you can there are in the united states for instance low low income communities are hugely impacted and that's because of um issues around poverty inequality and so on. So the, the, the issue of a natural disaster is not really so natural. It is in mediated by social uh, and economic uh, issues. It's also mediated by policies. So what we saw also in Puerto Rico in 2017 after Hurricane Irma and Maria is mm -hmm. as a result of the relationship and the colonial relationship that Puerto Rico has with the United States that has had, had seen in any in any country, the United States is considered, you know, an industrialized country. Puerto Rico is part of the United States, where a blackout, you know, for more than a month, the the, the island is in, in 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 darkness. It tells you this the very disproportionate uh, effects that climate change has on you know major cities in the United States, for instance, poor and low income. Uh, country, poor and low-income communities are affected very differently from rich and affluent areas of the United States. We, if we compare, for instance, um, how small island states are affected, whereas the United States is able to, for instance, to segregate the impacts of climate change there, and where you see, you know, disproportionate effects in low-income communities, Island states are not, and low-income countries are not able to, to segregate those, th those effects. And this has to do in part, with, in part with size, but also the economic status of those countries, uh, which when they're hit by a major disaster or environmental uh, uh, event, this affects everything that's going on in the country, how the country mm -hmm. functions, yeah. how how the society functions, how people are able to access resources, access jobs, access healthcare, health facilities, education, and so on. So, it, it's, you, you, so that is the major difference between how low-income and, and island states are, are affected by, by these kinds of environmental disruptions compared to how, for instance, the United Kingdom or the, the US yeah. is affected. And, and you talk a lot in your work about how this isn't just because of the um, modern state of things. It's because, because of the, um, explicitly because of the colonial history of these countries. Yes, for sure. I mean, the, 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 the relationship, and this is, this is something that I have been thinking about, and this has been emerging a lot in, in, in recent, um, recent research. I mean, 
research showing the clear lines between colonialism and colonization and the, the, the particular practices, environmental practices, the, the kinds of effects of um, infrastructural damage that has been done over many years, decades and, and even centuries, and, and the environmental destruction that ha happens as a result of colonial, former colonial powers or imperial powers uh, imposing certain types of agricultural practices, for instance, or certain types yeah. of extractive industries. There, that's, you see the clear lines between those kinds of, 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 of practices and those types of, of uh, policies and processes and the effects of climate change today and 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 the 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 effects that that they have particularly on those 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 countries so uh the inability of of uh developing countries to uh recover and become resilient to the effects or mitigate the effects of climate change we're seeing is a a direct uh, result of that that colonial experience mm -hmm. and and added to that you can see the 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 fact that after for instance after the the late 18th century when we saw you know the pick uptick in in greenhouse gas emissions uh, two major sets of countries are responsible for that increase in 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 greenhouse gas emissions and this is as a result direct result of the industrial revolution right that happened in western europe and in the united states so the united states has historically been i think it's 25 percent of historical greenhouse gas emissions is due to activity uh and industrialization in the united states Mm -hmm. Is there, I, I just wonder if, uh, about the, the ways in which old, uh, well, former colonial systems still impact today, uh, these, uh, like l still developing or more lesser developed countries. Is there an example that kind of stands out to you as, as, um, as a country that is still very, very much like at maybe one of the kind of worst case examples that, that is being impacted by these? I think the, the most recent example that I've, uh, I know and I know well and I've written about is Haiti. So Haiti was uh, colonized by the French uh, for a couple centuries and Haiti has been the first country that had released itself and, 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 and ousted the the french after you know the the in 1791 it 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 the the country had uh led by some en former enslaved black leaders they decided and they fought wars with the french and 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 napoleon bonaparte and they released themselves from and became the first independent black nation in the in the world right uh and that, that process, the process of colonial plantation agriculture uh, that 
that was that saw Haiti as the richest and most lucrative plantation economy in the world at, at a certain point in time, the types of environmental practices that were institutionalized by, by the French, the, 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 the relationship that Haiti also developed with the United States that saw the United States under Thomas Jefferson, for instance, as president, mm -hmm. uh, that he imposed an embargo on the country. He uh, also uh, ref refused to recognize the, the independence of, of, of Haiti. Uh, and other, for other former presidents of the United States also were responsible for policies that that opened up Haiti's economy to agricultural products, uh, multinational corporations that, that exploited land and agriculture and so on. And, and you see these historical processes directly related to how Haiti's land is, is de de degraded. Its environmental system and ecosystem is is largely uh, unable to and uh, to 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 withstand any major uh, disaster. It 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 mm -hmm. its economy is in 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 serious shambles as a result of paying for its wanting to be free from from colonial powers and yeah. as a result of its uh, the types of environmental systems and practices that were institutionalized there by the French and later the, the, the United States. Yeah, and Haiti is pretty, um, pretty exceptionally kind of positioned, I think, as you say in one of your papers on it, the 96% um, of the population is exposed to natural hazards um, and that the vast majority of the, of the poor uh, live in areas that provide livelihoods, that provide food and, and livelihood for for most Haitians for for uh, almost three quarters um, so so th this is not I feel like just to, to kind of add from your own text to what you're saying now it seems like not only have those policies through the years really affected it but it's also in the exceptional position where it can be affected um, that much more yeah so I mean the, the statistics are there in from from the up until 2009 and and later on Haiti has suffered the in terms of human costs the one of the largest number of people who've died from environmental disasters mm -hmm. Haiti is also up until 2017 um based on the global climate risk index is the one of the top three three countries that is faces an environmental uh, catastrophe and, and considered the, the most environmentally prone to, to, to major um, disasters like hurricanes, droughts. Uh, droughts are, are a yearly occurrence uh, in Haiti. Uh, so there are really direct, you can see those links and causal links between uh, what happened in its history and the types mm -hmm. of the type of economy that was built uh, on the colonial foundations, and 
what is happening now in terms of how degraded its in its environment is the types of of practices that that uh haitians themselves have to engage in such as cutting down of trees and so on basically to sell those types of goods to survive especially at, at times when when it with when it faced embargoes from from the international community and so on so mm -hmm. yeah so you you definitely can see uh the risk and the 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 amount of climate and environmental exposure that haiti faces and and how that is linked yeah yeah and, and it seems like it's not just about the um the the issues of climate change but also about how we we can solve them i mean i we've seen uh, some of your work on that's criticized uh the solutions to climate change as being um imperialist or, or neocolonialist yes i i think so climate change and and climate science so if we think about it in that way it is not a value-free kind of um science right and climate change is not only a scientific event that is happening based on natural occurrences of, of temperature increase. It is a process, a, pol uh, uh, a process that is intimately related with political decisions, mm -hmm. with economic processes that, that, have, that have taken place over time. So, you know, the, 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 the types of, of, for instance, the types of solutions such as uh, what we've seen you know, globally, we, you know, we, we're talking about both here in, in, West, in, in, in the UK, Western Europe and the United States, there's a major move and push towards what they're calling green, a green recovery post uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And there is a major discussion around the Green New Deal in the United States yeah. and what that means for, um, for, for, you know global recovery uh i mean places like the the Inter international monetary fund and un organizations have also jumped on board with with this idea of a green new deal and applying it to the global global uh situation but mm -hmm. many of those ideas are actually uh they have an and policy proposals have been developed without consideration of uh, developing countries and without consideration of the needs and aspirations of developing countries. But also, I think, and this is the major point, they, they're developed in isolation of and without recognition of the fact that the, the United States and Western European powers are mostly responsible for the climate crisis. So Europe has contributed historically 22% of, of greenhouse gas emissions. As, as, as I mentioned, uh, United States contributed 25. That's almost 50% of global historical greenhouse gas emissions, which is responsible for the, uh, which are responsible for the cl climate crisis that these two uh, major blocks in, 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 in terms of economic and, and political power in the world have contributed to, to this mm -hmm. situation. So the, the, the green, green New Deal, Green Recovery Plans, and so on, all these plans are being developed within that political uh, 
scenario where the United States and Europe are in control of major global institutions, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, such as the International Monetary Fund, yeah. such as the World Bank and so on. We've we've talked about on the podcast before about um the kind of extractive nature of of things like the Green New Deal that that seem to base all hopes and 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 future wishes on uh, on very extractive policies for for example like you know that rely on mining in um, in Congo for example for for wind turbines and for solar panels um, a lot of things that have now proven to have very detrimental effects on 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 lesser developed countries and and I feel like we are still heading that way regardless so so one of the solutions that you kind of put forward is uh, climate change, climate reparations to, to tackle that. Yeah. I, so we are very much predicating the, these new economic, supposedly new economic plans on uh, very old uh, ideas of, of extraction and very traditional ways of organizing our, our, our economy. So for instance, the Green New Deal, for instance, is premised on the, the idea that the United States state, the state as an entity, should invest, uh, should make major public investments, right? Mm -hmm. The United States is also the most uh, powerful financial actor in the world, both in terms of uh, controlling the, the, the the United States dollar, which is the, the major currency of exchange and major invoicing currency in the world, and also mo the, the majority of major financial players are based in the United States or U.S. corporations. So that, that fact tells us that, you know, based on Wall Street, that fact tells us that the, the system that, that is suggesting the Green New Deal that suggests the United States uh, government and federal government should increase its investment based on a current, the current system that we're operating on, based on new, neoliberal uh, prescriptions, should increase investment and should, should increase uh, manufacturing capability and, and, and production of technology. That's what the Green, the Green New Deal is premised on. That basically says the United States should 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 further its economic advantage on all other countries. Should also increase its its state power. And when you increase state power in the United States, you're also what that means is also increasing military power. And 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 although there are discussions around divesting from the military, those discussions around how do we transform the financial system is way, way behind um, in terms of how do we manage this kind of transition. So it, it is very, very a complex scenario, but these are parts and bits and pieces that people who advocate and advocates of the, the Green New Deal are not fully um, engaging fully with. Engaging with, exactly. Mm -hmm. They're not fully analyzing to understand how do you divest from fossil fuels? So, so the, the, the solutions seem to some degree very simplistic. They seem huge in terms of the number of, 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 um, 
of, of huge in terms of the number, amount of investment, state support, and so on that should go in, but it does not, it is not based on a very complex analysis of how the United States is interconnected with the rest of the world and how it influences major institutions and, and channels of, of economic power uh, that affect other countries and especially developing countries. I wonder um, from, from your um, research and perhaps even your personal experience uh, working in international institutions, how international institutions like the UN um, kind of approach the topic of climate reparation um, do you, do you think you know they've they've helped a bit but not enough or do you think they're just you know maybe not doing the right thing at all yeah so i mean coming back to the 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 the, the question of climate reparations i think it has to be it is climate reparations are a mechanism and a program that recognizes first and foremost imperial and colonial powers have been have contributed the most to the climate crisis through their process of industrialization, through their process of, of development, and therefore must pay uh, or must engage in a program of repairing the damage and ongoing damage that have been, that have been uh, meted or visited upon countries that are least responsible. So that's the first thing. So it's based on the premise of climate justice. Right, and the, the important uh, issue around payment for, for that, that ongoing damage, but also a, a, a sort of broader program on, on how do you build resilience and build uh, climate and adaptive capacities in, in developing countries. Uh, so for instance, the, the, I think the, the issue around the UN and, and addressing this, so, the, the paper that I wrote on climate reparations, interestingly, was done, uh, was, com was commissioned by the United Nations Association of the United Kingdom, uh, which is an independent UN association. It's not, I mean, it's not a direct body of the United Nations, but it was commissioned by that group. I don't think, I think they were very um, surprised by this particular proposal, but it was also uh, it meant to feed into this year's UN General Assembly negotiations and political high-level meeting, which I'm, I'm, I'm not sure is going to go forward based on climate change per se. It might more focus now, which, which it happens in September, but it might focus more on the COVID-19 crisis. But it, it was, uh, so from that angle, there is some engagement. I don't think uh, there is real interest from UN organizations around climate debt, per se, I think mm -hmm. that, or climate reparations, because that is something that is not going to sit well with, with major um, powers such as the United States and United mm -hmm. Kingdom. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it goes back to, uh, so the idea of climate reparations is directly linked to the concept of loss and damage, right? So mm -hmm. climate loss and damage is a, a category uh, or concept within the United Nations framework on climate change that suggests there is ongoing damage that is meted out on countries 
because of the climate crisis, which aren't necessarily seen right away, but it's, an, it's based on an, a long process of how, how climate change affects countries. And in 2015, when the uh, Paris Agreement was set up, and when the Paris Agreement was, was agreed, uh, loss and damage made it into the, the agreement, but there was absolutely no direct funding or international funding or climate funding that was linked to loss and damage. And that is because right. the United States had uh, more or less politically decided that it should not, there should not be any sort of um, uh, reference in terms of financial commitment to loss and damage that are faced by, by developing countries. Mm -hmm. And so we see within the UN framework itself how power, power dynamics work. Uh, so loss and damage was not made into a, a, a particular climate fund, funding stream. And this is where the issue of climate reparations for me comes in uh, because there is no mechanism internationally to address it, uh, loss and damage from climate change. And we need a mechanism and a program that recognizes how major countries have contributed to and should contribute to addressing the problem in a direct way. I want to get into the, the details of climate reparations, because I think a lot of people, when they hear about reparations, uh, whether it's related to, for example, like um, slavery or, or anything like that, they, they often they don't have a very good idea of what it means practically, right? Because as far as I'm aware, at least reparations are a pretty rare thing. Um, so how do you see it in practically, how do you see climate reparations happening and, and in what form would they take so people can kind of get a better idea? I think the, the, the question of uh, practicality uh, is, is important, but I think we first have to recognize the concept as important and the, the, the recognize the political salience of it from the perspective of the argument, right? And the, the, the importance of, of how countries have, you know, disproportionately contributed to, to, to the, the situation that, that disproportionately affect um, uh, countries in the global south. So from the, from the perspective of how do we uh, frame it and how do we institutionalize it, I think it is important to, to, to set up and, and form some form of body that is going to be responsible for uh, and that is, that is controlled, in, in my view, by developing countries and the most vulnerable countries uh, that to, to climate, uh, climate exposure. That, that's really interesting. Like, how, how would you, um, how, how would you think this could arise? Do you imagine some sort of international union, perhaps? It, it would have to be both based on some form of struggle from people in the global south. So struggle, when I say social, some sort of political organizing, some sort of um, organizing around, and this has happened historically. We've seen this 
uh, in many phases in, in, in since, I guess, since the Second World War, where countries have tried to organize around a common agenda. Uh, so it has to, would, would need to happen around some form of mobilization, social, so, social and political organizing that makes these, these demands uh, and puts these demands on the international agenda. Uh, and from that, you can sort of build out how that is going to look from, from the, the perspective of the Global South, from the perspective of workers in the Global South, and from the perspective of marginalized communities in the Global South. And it would have to, to, to look, would have to organize around how do we uh, get and, and, and accumulate direct transfers from countries in the Global North and how do we uh, channel those transfers, direct financial transfers, but also it goes beyond financial uh, means to a sort of broader uh, collective democratic program yeah, of, yeah. Of, of resilience building around community uh, cohesion, around a long-term program of, of democratic institutions that are created in the, in the global south. So I, I and I think it, it's, I'm not being prescriptive here because it's not something that I need to do personally, but it has to be something that is, uh, emerges from that sort of collective organiz organizational uh, dynamic in, in the global south that engages with, with, with um, powers in, in the north. I guess the question is, is that since this is a proposed solution, why hasn't this been tried before? There's such an institution or, or has it, do, do you know? So I, it, it, the, the issue around, um, <laughs> I mean, it comes back to power, right? And power dynam dynamics. Uh, and it is a matter of how power relations operate in the, in the global economy, right? And, and solutions such as this. So we saw the example of the no international financing for loss and damage uh, portfolio of, of, of climate change uh, financing. Uh, and that is a result of the United States, you know, making certain determinations with, you know, in its, it, what is seen it's in its interest. Um, because it don't want to, it does not want to be seen as responsible for for making those kinds of payments. Um, so, global institutions that are set up now, how they're set up. So, if we think about the World Bank, if we think about uh, the International Monetary Fund, they're set up for financial institutions, institutional investors, and financial interests to gain to profit from and extract profit from uh, investments that mm. happen in the global south. Uh, and these institutions have been, at least over the past 30 years, they have operated in this manner. So in, in investments that are made in, for instance, in infrastructure, investments that are made uh, increasingly in climate uh, projects, adaptation or mitigation projects through uh, the UN organization, the, the Green Climate Fund, they're made to 
return investments or re to make a return on investments to financial mm -hmm. contributors and investors, as opposed to addressing issues of justice, as opposed to addressing issues of uh, what is due and owed, duly owed to uh, developing countries. So it is a matter of power dynamics and power relations uh, and, and who has certain relative power over these institutions. That's why I suggest in, in the paper that I've, I've written that it cannot be done through the existing organizational mm -hmm. framework, global mm -hmm. multilateral framework. It has to be done through a different set of um, institutions and a different set of uh, organizational uh, modalities that are currently not in existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I wonder how how you see this kind of uh, pragmatically happening personally, because I I see the U.S., for example, not recognizing the International Court of Justice or, you know, refusing to abide by this or that kind of international rule. And I'm not saying just the U.S. Um, should or, or would pay climate reparations, but let's take the example of the U.S. that we've stuck with. Um, it, it doesn't seem to me at least very likely that America would accept responsibility for something like this and and work towards something that in the end would mean a net loss for them? Um, I think it has to do with more uh, sort of the fact that ideas, the, the current moment suggests to me that there is, um, there is room for different kinds of ideas and there room, there's room for different kinds of proposals. But as I mentioned, it has to be backed up and supported by political power uh, and democratic type of organizing that happens in, in, mm -hmm. in, in the global south. From that point of view, it, it is a matter of first, before we get into the practicalities of it being delivered in a particular manner, because I don't have, I don't have uh, any um, qualms around uh, mm -hmm. the feasibility of it. I understand the global political situation, but I also understand that the importance of ideas, I also understand the importance of, of how political power is organized and how it, it comes from um, mobilizing people, it comes from spreading those ideas, it comes from uh, engaging with people on the ground level and in developing countries mm -hmm. is, is my major concern at the moment. Uh, and it has to also come from the diffusion of and, and the, 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 the lived experience of, of, of people in the global south. It has to come from, from their, uh, you know, recognition of the fact that things are going to get worse in terms of the climate crisis, and they're going to get worse and it's going to also affect countries like the United States through the influx of climate refugees, the potential yeah. influx of climate refugees. So if we, we, we want to uh, think about how uh, these kinds of ideas can form a seed in, in, in people's minds, it's important for us to also think about many ideas 
that have not been seen as possible have also have in the past been been realized through organizing, through political uh, discussions, through the kinds of grassroots mobilization that are that are necessary, and they they became you know they became uh, real and they became very salient to to mm -hmm. people who are most affected by it. And because the 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 United States and other countries uh, would not want to see um, a huge influx of climate refugees, which is very possible in the not too distant future. We need yeah. to engage with these kinds of ideas and we need to engage with, with these kinds of mechanisms that is going to deliver some form of justice to, to, to people who are most affected. Is this a, a problem that you see um, Caribbean nations acknowledging? Like, do, do you think that for you, Caribbean nations are kind of aware of this problem and working towards getting things like reparations or or um, solutions that include them? So yeah, definitely. So there is a movement that has been that has been started at, at what is called the the Caricom reparations. Uh, group that was set up a few years ago, led by the 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 principal of the University of the West Indies, so uh, Hillary Hillary um, um, Hillary Beckles, sorry, and it started around a broader program of recognition of uh, colonial uh, native genocide and and colonialism and you know slavery and so on and and the fact that countries imperial powers should engage with that issue and should uh, uh, make commitments towards redressing their role in in enslavement redressing their role in colonialism and native genocide so there is a broader discussion around reparations but I think the, the discussion around climate reparations is very is a newer one, and it is uh, something that has not yet um, it has it has fed into the conversation after uh, Hurricane Maria and Irma in 2017, which hit about which hit a number of Caribbean nations and affected them. Um, to I mean. For instance, Barbuda, which is part of Antigua and Barbuda, Barbuda was made completely uninhabitable, uh, and you know countries such as Saint Martin and uh, the Virgin Islands and so on, mm -hmm. and Dominica to a large degree was affected as a result of those hurricanes in 2017, and there was some there was some recognition that reparations should align to the destruction that was that was faced and the incapacity uh, that, that those countries face and as a result of that. Um, but the, the mainstream uh, the discussion of climate reparations as yet is not mainstream in the region. And that's why I say organizing, publishing, uh, political discussions such as this one, all of these kinds of discussions help build the awareness around, around mm -hmm. these ideas and, and how they can be uh, mm -hmm. Uh, filtered and facilitated do you see any any movements uh you know speaking outside of the caribbeans or, or 
question is do you see do you see any movements in uh western europe or, or america that gives you a bit of hope um that this kind of topic may be addressed in a in a very real way yeah um so for instance the united states there is a, a discussion happening now around reparations for uh descendants mm -hmm. of slavery in the united states and i think the discussion around uh the green new deal ironically actually presents an opportunity for these kinds of conversations and these kinds of mm -hmm. ideas to come through um because the, the conversation around the green new deal uh in addition to to reparations in the united states have been largely nationalistic and in, in focus but i think it offers the opportunity just the fact of that discussion happening it offers the opportunity for these uh this particular idea of climate reparations to come through uh the mainstream and that's why i've been been writing a lot over these past few weeks about it uh, because i think the the moment is ripe at the moment for for these new new types of ideas to 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 happen and to for them to to make it uh on the agenda of 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 people in particular um, that's who i'm really interested in talking to i'm in, i'm interested in talking to and 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 you know filtering some of these ideas to regular people not really you know the political mm -hmm. class or you know political institutions per se dr keston perry thanks for joining our odyssey thank you for your thank time you. and <laughs> and your and your knowledge and and all that came with it um i think yeah there's a lot to be said about this is a, a case for justice really i mean when a wrong is done surely there should be talk and action about how to right that wrong we wish you the best with everything you you've got going on we saw that you have a big research plan for for the next few years it looks really uh impressive and, and daunting so uh, good luck with that and we'll we'll definitely read your your things as you keep going yeah yeah thank you very much jamie and skander